Welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to Trailblazing Tribes Agriculture, an episode of the Environmental Law Institute's People, Places, Planet podcast. My name is Cynthia Harris, and I'm the director of ELI's Tribal Programming. Today, we're talking about agriculture, which encompasses more than just nutrition. When it comes to the 573 federally recognized tribes in the United States, agriculture represents a source of food security, an opportunity to express tribal sovereignty, drive economic development, and reclaim the cultivation of plants and animals central to a tribe's culture across generations. Many tribes are innovating in ways involving new technologies, business models, and, of course, understanding and even redefining the law. Today, we're speaking with an advocate, learning about two tribes leading the way, and picking the brain of a leading legal expert about the Farm Bill, or rather, to help us decode this behemoth piece of legislation and what the most current version means for tribes. Let's get started with our first guest, Zach Ducheneau, Executive Director with the Intertribal Agriculture Council. The Council's membership has encompassed all federally recognized tribes in Alaska Natives since its founding in 1987. Zach, can you tell us a bit about the Intertribal Agriculture Council's mission and some of its programs? Basically, we provide anything that an Indian producer or someone in the food sector could need. We provide assistance toward that end, whether it's financing, technical assistance with an application or a certification process, assistance in exporting a a product that they've already developed. Uh, And we've also got a very significant youth leadership and professional development pipeline that we're now drawing our own new employees from. So we're trying to provide the foundation for turning ag production into food production again. That's been the challenge in Indian country since, probably since the allotment era roughly. But if you'll take a look at the poverty maps for the nation on a county by county basis, Indian country is always the darkest color. And we've had a lot of initiatives aimed at addressing that, but we have never made a concerted effort to rebuild the food systems that helped our communities prosper in the past. And we feel like that's a critical part of any solution to the the persistently impoverished areas that overlay Indian country. And what do you see as the greatest barrier to tribal citizens thriving in the agriculture sector? You know, Indian agriculture and ag finance is bigger than just the actual finance that's happening in the ag sector. Our people are paying four to 5% more in interest for their regular money. We've got banks in our communities that are charging 16, 17% for secured credit. So that is also pushing down on our Indian producers because if they want to go finance a washing machine or a a vehicle that'll get them the 120 miles a day they need to drive to get to and from their off-farm employment, that cost of money has to be uh, made up somewhere and it's gonna come out of their ag operation. The truth of the matter is, an Indian can mortgage its individually held trust land in a way that makes a lender 100% secure. Lenders choose not to do that, or if they do it, they discount that real estate in value so that the producer can't get the proper amount of capital that he needs, and he can never get it on terms that are comfortable. Where a non-Indian can go and do a a 30-year mortgage 
on their real estate, and the bank does it regularly and gives them in, the in, interest rate that is tied to that security. Indian producers generally don't enjoy that luxury. The biggest barrier at this point in time to Indian country flourishing and turning from ag economies to food economies is a lack of affordable capital through financing vehicles. And that that's a problem that's becoming more prevalent nationwide, not just in Indian country. You know, we're seeing farm debt go up 4% a year since 1994. We've got suicide hotlines cropping up all across the country for farmers and ranchers. You know, there, there's something that we feel is inherently broken in the ag finance system. And I think it's the fact that ag finance currently serves finance, not ag. And what's the solution? We've got an idea to change all of that, to treat our agribusiness partners as as just that, partners, not as people who we want to loan money to and try to recover our loan funds as quick as possible. We're looking to invest through our CDFI, which is a community development financial institution, invest in our partners in Indian country that are in ag and food production and help them keep the capital on their side of the ledger and pay us a return on investment. Treat our Indian producers like the business opportunity that they are. Now that where tribes are having success in spite of this landscape, it's commitment from tribal leadership to focus on this as an issue, which is challenging because tribes all across the country have so many issues that they need to be focusing on. And turning into a food economy is kind of a one-off or two-off solution. It's a, it's a few years out before you can do it. You know, going out and building that casino or entering into that 8A contract is a little more short-term. But we have to wrap our minds around the fact that we've got over 50 million acres of land, over 45 million of it is in ag production or capable of ag production. And until we really focus our attention on addressing that and improving that, we're still going to struggle with access to capital. Despite these challenges, tribes bring many innovative approaches to agriculture. Can you give us an example of this? We're realizing that European agriculture doesn't work on the North American continent. And the things that we're talking about, pasture to plate, uh, sustainable grazing, regenerative agriculture, those aren't, those aren't innovations. Mm -hmm. Those are returning to what was going on on this continent in 1491. The drone technology is observational research based on a visual appraisal, which is what our people did generation over generation over generation. So we figured out how to process a vanilla bean. The multi-step process to get vanilla from a vanilla bean is still the same as it was when it was discovered in South America centuries ago. So I, I think there's a, a burgeoning awareness, if you will, of maybe maybe they were doing it right here and we should have just looked at enhancing that instead of trying to bring wheat over here or try to turn this into tobacco plantations. That's where we're at with agriculture from the Indian perspective. And the council's professional development and youth programs ensure this knowledge is carried on to future generations. I'm pretty fond of, of picking on folks that have an education because I'm a dropout myself. Uh, I came home to ranch and kind of thought this was a good place to raise my family instead of finishing up college and going on to be a lawyer like I started off to be. But I get to the 
I'll get in a meeting and there'll be some PhDs and some masters in biology. And I'll just do a poll. I'll say, how many of you are this? How many of you are that? And they, usually it's folks in the ag or food field. And I said, congratulations. You have achieved at this point in your life what every 13-year-old native on this continent knew in 1491. Because our kids knew all of this. We knew what, what foods were medicine. We knew what foods were poison. We knew why that food in particular would clot your blood as opposed to that one, which was an antihistamine. And our kids knew that at a very early age. So our whole youth program is, is built to realize that and understand that we've got to be bringing that next generation along so that they know the things that we know. So if disease should take this generation out that I happen to be part of, the next generation already knows. And we really want to embrace the opportunity that we have with technology like podcasts or YouTube videos or things like that to help our youth realize the storytelling model of conveying research from one generation to the next is absolutely valuable. And your people were doing it right. Now we have the technology to make sure that we can preserve this for generations as far out as we can have electricity and electrons. So from our youth development in the last, gosh, about 10 years, we've made a focused effort at helping our youth realize there is more to agriculture than just literally working in the dirt. We need biologists. We need graphic designers. We need folks that like to work with numbers. We need folks that like to do research on, on animal behavior. All of these things contribute to your reservation's agriculture economy. Thank you, Zach. To learn more about the Intertribal Agriculture Council, visit IndianAgLink.com. Let's talk about agriculture as a method for tribes to gain self-sufficiency. The Quapaw, or Agapa tribe, are the downstream people, or downstream of the Mississippi River. In 1834, the tribe was forcibly relocated to a reservation in Indian Territory. Today, the tribe is headquartered in Quapaw, Oklahoma, and is engaged in a number of enterprises, including gaming, hospitality, realty, and critically, commercial agriculture and cattle operations. Here with me now is Chris Roper with the Quapaw Services Authority. Chris, I understand you run a true pasture-to-plate operation. What type of animals do you raise? We raise several uh, Angus cattle and uh, American bison. Um, we also source pork from local farmers and produce the local pork at our processing plant, uh, and we can retail all of those products in our stores. We use those products in our restaurants, and we use those products in our daycares and elder centers. So we're able to control all the production of those products from start to finish. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of the operation, which sounds pretty extensive, what was the impetus? I understand you started with bison, which I believe are a traditional food. We did, yes. They are traditional food for Native Americans. We started with the bison in 2010, and that, those were some of the first animals we, bought, we brought back to tribal lands. Uh, those animals were important culturally, and once we got those animals established back on the lands, we started working with outside entities such as the Intertribal Bison Council uh, to be able to uh, train some of our people to take care of the animals and also source other animals that we could bring back to our lands. And that eventually led us to being able to process those animals and use them uh, for cultural meals in our elder centers, at our daycares, and for our uh, cultural events. So it's been very important to our tribe to be able to have those animals here. What's the extent of the operation today? Today we have several different operations. We have 
the bison that started in 2010. We have the greenhouses that we started in 2013, and we have about six of those greenhouses now, as well as numerous raised gardens that we can grow various vegetables, herbs, and flowers. We have about 2,000 acres of row crops that we can grow various crops like corn, wheat, soybeans, and canola. We're able to use some of those products for animal feeds uh, so that we can feed animals our own products uh, and finish those animals and before they're processed. We have our coffee roasting facility that started in 2014. Uh, of course, our processing plant that started in 2017. We have our beehives uh, that, that we've been continually growing for the last several years. Uh, and we have about 100 beehives as well currently. Um, we have uh, several different operations that we're able to use all these food products in as well as retail. Um, the One of our newest ventures will open in May of this, of this year will be our new farmers market. They were able to sell products and offer various products to our community and our tribe members at a reduced cost so that it'll help them with food security issues that we've identified in our area. We have an animal feeding facility. They were able to feed animals um, and control the diets of those animals, and we can actually do that for outside customers as well. But the craft beer, the, I did forget that, but well, the craft beer started in uh, 2017, and we've been able to do four different brews, and as we expand our operations into Arkansas, we're going to increase that uh, craft beer production as well. The Quapaw Tribe is also expanding its food production enterprise far beyond the reservation to international customers. Could you tell us a bit about that? We have numerous inquiries constantly from overseas uh, in regards to uh, our coffee, beef sticks, beef jerky, as well as fresh meats. We have sent samples to uh, Iran, Dubai, Hong Kong, China, uh, South America, uh, just all over the world, and gotten feedback from other groups and organizations that want to do business with us on, you know, different packaging requirements. Uh, we've sent our people to some uh, export training. Uh, we sent our coffee roasting manager to Japan this year to a food show, and he was able to market our coffee products in Japan. Uh, we're looking to keep expanding to overseas markets uh, as uh, opportunities arise, but we're actively seeking the, those opportunities and working with other distributors right now. Now, as you've grown and expanded, what lessons learned have you picked up along the way? <laughs> Absolutely. There are lots of lessons learned and lots of growing pains, even since we started we have, uh, you know, started in agriculture back in 2010. We've had to learn and train people. Um, staffing has probably been one of our issues. Uh, that as, as you grow different entities and operations, you have to have people that can manage those. Um, and, and in agriculture, some of the things that we do, it's hard to find people that know how to do that locally. So we end up having to find people that... Um, you know, have good personalities, have good work ethics, and then we train them uh, to do particular jobs and to manage different businesses that we have. So, you know, the one of our biggest growing pains is staffing itself and finding good people that can run the operations. But once we find those people and identify them, it's just phen phenomenal to watch the growth occur. Yeah, each entity has its own bit of red tape. Uh, the processing plant uh, was probably one of the most challenging in dealing with USDA. Uh, we wanted that to be a federally inspected facility so that, that those meat products could travel across state lines and ultimately even overseas. In order to do that, you have to work with USDA's Food Safety Inspection Service, and that plant has to be inspected uh, continually by that, by that group. Um, that plant was assigned a facility number, and we have a full-time federal inspector in that facility every day of the week. 
We also have worked with uh, USDA Ag Marketing Service, and we took a tribe member with a cooperative agreement with AMS and uh, had one of our tribe members trained as a USDA meat grader. So that tribe member was able to have his own USDA stamp, and he can grade meat in our facility, and that grading stamp can stay with that product wherever it goes. We have adopted our own food codes as well. So as a tribal nation, we have a set of food codes that we abide by. But as each individual operation, we've had to develop some food codes similar to the processing plant. that We, we had to develop a set of codes that would um, pass federal regulations through Food Safety Inspection Service and that we could adopt and follow on a daily basis. So. That's been an interesting one. The coffee facility has a set of regulations that it goes by. Um, anything in food production is, is very strictly regulated and, and has a set of codes that we have to follow. In addition to finding good people, what advice do you have for tribes looking to s- succeed in food production? We work with tribes all over the United States, and we're happy to share what we've learned, both good and bad. You know, I, I thoroughly recommend everybody to do their homework. Uh, meat production is a challenging business. Um, row crops, the coffee, honey production, they all have their own challenges. Greenhouses are very interesting and, and uh, very rewarding to watch the plants grow and provide food to the various entities that we have. But the meat production has been probably the most challenging of all the things that we've uh, tackled just really based on knowing where that product goes and uh, controlling the quality along the way. You, you absolutely have to know where that product is going to end up before you process that animal so that you can get it packaged right, labeled right, cut right. Um, a, lot, a lot of challenges in meat production. We do work with, with several tribes across the United States on uh, various agricultural operations in different capacities. Some of them were, were helping develop floor plans, we're helping work through regulations, uh, we're sharing consultant information with them. So we work with a lot of tribes in, in various capacities. And what have these ventures, these very successful ventures, meant for the tribes itself beyond the economic benefits? Culturally speaking, it's been very important to get the tribe back to its roots getting tribe members back to growing their own food, being able to grow and produce products that we can be proud of and know where they came from. Um, Controlling quality of coffee and meat and vegetables and herbs has been phenomenal. It's actually changed uh, the meals in our restaurants. It's changed the meals in our elder center and our daycares. And even in our restaurants at our casinos and hotels, We've been able to improve the food quality because the freshness of the food is so phenomenal. Our customers recognize the difference in food that they're eating, and they keep coming back to experience that again and again. Thank you, Chris. To learn more about the Quapa Tribe's food production enterprise, visit quapatribe.com. You can also check out a documentary on the Quapa on Amazon Prime. Where else? Pride of the Ogapa. The Cherokee Nation is the largest tribal nation, with more than 360,000 tribal citizens. The nation manages a number of businesses with significant economic impact and initiated several cultural and environmental programs. We're here today with a modern-day Indiana Jones, the Environmental Resources Senior Director with the Cherokee Nation, Pat Gwynn. When I first caught up with Pat, he was preparing feathers from an eagle, an eagle already deceased from natural causes, I want to assure our listeners, for use in a ceremony honoring outgoing tribal council members. Pat, I have to ask, what's an average day for you like? What hats do you wear? Well, 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 well thank you, Ms. Harris. Um, I wear, I guess, a lot of hats. The average day starts at 6 and uh, uh, ends about the same time 12 hours later. But uh, uh, I, have, I have been with the tribe for uh, 
going on 30 years now, I guess. And uh, I have some administrative duties that I have to do, uh, keeping track of uh, a couple of employees, of course, those administrative things that no one likes to do, particularly those with a science background, I guess. <laughs> but uh, the main thing is that I have to assure that our uh, hundreds of species of, of plants and crops that we have down in the uh, seed bank uh, garden and native plant site are healthy and thriving so I can make sure that uh, I get our citizens uh, the plant materials they uh, either need and or request when we open up the seed bank. Before we get started, could you define for our listeners what precisely a seed bank is? Well, the, uh, I, I'm assuming that it can mean uh, a little, you know, different things to different folks. But at the end of the day, you know, a bank is an institution in which uh, you uh, you place items of value therein. And when you need to uh, withdraw, the, you know, they're held safely therein. And uh, uh, when you need to withdraw them, uh, you can go to that facility and take them out. And uh, that's exactly what this is. Uh, Every year, the Cherokee Nation grows, uh, you know, uh, tens of thousands of, of seeds uh, from various plants. We, uh, you know, we grow during the spring and summer. We harvest and prepare uh, and uh, store in the fall and winter. And then every February, we, we retrieve those or withdraw those from the bank, everything but uh, a uh, two sets of genetics that we want to keep one set of genetics we will plant the following year and another set of genetics which is held in a different location in case there's some type of uh, of catastrophe you know we do live in tornado country here in Oklahoma and then the, the process starts all over uh, you know we we distribute the the excess seeds and uh, our genetics uh, start the process over again for another year could you share with us the story behind the seed bank because this was a big project requiring extensive research and even travel across the country. What was the impetus? Yeah, well, I can. It was in uh, uh, roughly 2005, late 2005. Uh, there was a, a Natural Resources Committee of the Council. The uh, Svalbard Global Seed Vault was going online, and it was the story of the day in a lot of uh, publications. The, uh, the council members... Uh, you know, really thought that was an interesting uh, endeavor, and they wanted to get uh, some of our Cherokee seeds uh, placed into the uh, uh, into the into the global vault. And I, at that point in time, was just was just a uh, a simple mere employee. I certainly wasn't management or anything like that. And I was actually there at the meeting, you know, as a uh, as a substitute, a proxy, and. Uh, told them that I, you know, I didn't know if we had any plans to do so, but uh, uh, could certainly look into that to which uh, they, you know, requested slash demanded that I do do exactly that, you know, come up with a list of, of heirlooms that the, the Cherokee Nation had and that our citizens had and uh, get those uh, placed into the uh, uh, seed vault. Uh, of course, our meetings are monthly, spent the next month, uh, doing some research and uh, the you know the the outcome of the research was not good we did not have uh, the Cherokee Nation nor were any of the citizens uh, that we knew of of our Cherokee citizens that we knew of actually maintaining those crops from our past uh, and I don't mean just wow. a few I mean zero we could find none uh, and when we uh, when I reported that back to the council, it was uh, at that point in time that it was it was determined that we had a cultural crisis ongoing, and that, that that crisis was going to receive an awful lot of attention, and was going to be rectified. And and you make a, a very important point because this isn't just about agriculture. This is about a loss of culture over time, and. This might even relate to the Cherokee language, which I understand is a language of metaphor and description. Is that correct? Well, uh, and remember, I'm a nerd. So, you know, <laughs> I generally use the term agronomy when I'm growing our things. And I use the term agriculture when I'm talking about the tribal aspect, because you can't have uh, 
culture. I mean, you can't have, uh, I mean, agri agriculture is the, the uh, nexus of uh, agronomy and culture. And uh, the, the Cherokee language, we're just like any other uh, uh, indigenous uh, North American tribe that uh, we have issues with, with our language now. You know, the United States is a predominantly English language, English speaking uh, entity. And uh, as uh, as our citizens pass and uh, new citizens replace them, you know, uh, Cherokee is a language that's spoken less and less. The loss of a of a of a of a Cherokee name or Cherokee phraseology and the loss of a plant are in act, in actuality the same thing. So once the name is lost, the plant is somewhat lost as well because the usage and or the pertinent Cherokee description thereof is lost. And uh, there's no time machine to go back and get those things. I understand you took an extensive journey over two years to reclaim a significant part of that heritage for the seed bank. Could you take us along part of that journey? Well, it didn't take two years. It's, it's, it, I don't know how long it's, it's, it's going to take because it's still ongoing. But uh, uh, in, in, two year, uh, in, the 2000, in that 2005 time period, we, we did commence a pretty uh, a rigorous search uh, going back to the eastern band of Cherokee Indians, East, uh, EBCI, and then going to various scholars some of our governmental entities and uh, even a few museums to look at a few, uh, uh, you know, uh, Cherokee cultural items that, uh, that we actually we thought may contain seed. We were able to get a few varieties of, of beans from uh, our, uh, our Cherokee brothers back east, the Eastern Band. Uh, a person's name whom I have to mention is uh, Carl Barnes. Uh, he's he's well known in the corn circles. He's uh, probably had more types of corn than any human being on the planet. Uh, uh, at the point at uh, in 2005, as he actually resided in the Panhandle of Oklahoma, we were able to get a few varieties of of corn from from him. Now you made a surprising find: a traditional Cherokee cultural pouch. It had tobacco seeds in it, right? It had uh, 12 seeds in the pouch. And if, if you talk, you have to understand that a tobacco seed is way smaller than a grain of, gra of finely ground uh, coffee. So tiny items. We were able to procure uh, uh, three of the seeds from, uh, from that pouch. And, and that's the start of uh, our tobacco that we grow today, you know, by, by the gallons to, tr to uh, distribute to our citizens. Uh, we continue to work, and we've gone from from no seed bank to now a seed bank that has, as I said, well over a hundred uh, uh, species therein. Any Cherokee citizen can request seeds. What's required of tribal citizens who request seeds or plants? For example, there's no charge, right? Remember, this is first and foremost a cultural endeavor, and. Uh, uh, these plants belong to the Cherokees. They don't. They don't belong to the Cherokee Nation, and they don't belong to. Uh, they certainly don't belong to me or any component thereof. They, they are considered the property of the Cherokee people. So, to to charge money for those would 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 be a dishonor to both the Cherokee in general and to our ancestors. So it's it's free of charge. Uh, don't ask me how they do it. The seed, uh, the, the the website's really uh, advanced, and it can uh, it can determine enrollment in the Cherokee Nation quite easily, and immediately it's all done automatically. And for the other two tribes, uh, they just simply provide us a copy of their uh, tribal registration. Now, because you're really breaking breaking ground in this, if you'll forgive the pun, do you have any lessons learned that you'd like to share with other tribes thinking about recovering their own heirloom crops? Well. Uh, you know, I come from uh, I come from a different era. I'm, I'm you know I'm on the the downhill side of life at this point in time. So I've seen more than uh, a lot of folks. But uh, you know, uh, my father was a uh, he he was he was a uh, he was a very democratic person. And uh, from a very young age, he informed us that uh, me and my brother that you know that we did not have to work the garden if we didn't want to. Working the garden was strictly voluntary. 
However, if you didn't work the garden, you weren't welcome at the dinner table. So, uh, so that, that, that sort of necessitated the need to develop an interest in, uh, in gardening and horticulture pretty quick. Uh, uh, and also doing a lot of things out in nature, he requested, uh, he would request certain things and uh, he didn't have a lot of patience. So if you brought him the wrong thing, uh, uh, yeah, you did not want to misidentify a, a particular species of plant because that was, that was not going to be a good day for either of you. So as I said, I developed, uh, uh, you know, an interest in this by necessity, you know, way before five and, and, and was doing this. So I think that uh, uh, the most important thing is for people to rekindle that interest that lies innately within not just Cherokees, but within all humans. Uh, I, I've met very few humans that don't eat. And uh, I think it's one of the sins of our day that people do not know where their food comes from. It's, it, it's amazing to me when, when I have students come to the, to the garden site and, uh, you know, they just have, uh, they have zero comprehension of exactly how food gets onto their table. And I think that if we were to rectify that particular equation, I think that we would not be suffering from this, this, uh, this truly aberrant, uh, excuse me, abhorrent uh, ill we have in society today of the food waste we have. Uh, I can assure you no food goes to waste in my house. And uh, I think if you would check with uh, folks that have a lot of dirt under their fingernails, you'll see they don't waste food either because it, gardening is about 5% uh, smarts. It's about uh, 4% uh, art, and it's about uh, 91% sweat because gardening is hard work. We talked about in 2005 this fall about Global Seed Vault, and uh, just a few days ago, I was on the phone with their uh, director of science, and we, the Cherokee Nation, is in the process of getting some of our uh, heirloom crops into the, the, that particular vault as we speak. So it, it's gone full circle. Thank you, Pat. To learn more about the Cherokee Nation Seed Bank, visit webapps.cherokee.org forward slash seed bank. Now, we are, after all, the Environmental Law Institute, so let's put this all into the context of the law. And what significant law should we talk about as part of this program other than the Farm Bill? For that, we have with us Colby Duran, Director of the Indigenous Food and Agriculture Initiative at the University of Arkansas. Colby, could you first tell us a bit about the initiative and the work you do where federal Indian law and agriculture law intersects? We've been around for, for six years. We were really founded and centered around trying to be able to help support tribal governments, tribal food producers, and food businesses, and build healthy food systems, help support tribal sovereignty, um, and really be able to, to, to do this through looking at strategic legal analysis, policy research, and providing educational resources, all focusing on empowering Indian country, being able to kind of really put uh, tribal sovereignty into the food sovereignty movement and doing so looking at a way of building it through sustainable food and agriculture economic development. For our listeners, could you give us the 30,000 foot overview of the farm bill? Will you take that challenge? Yes, I will. Um, uh, it's always fun to take to take a larger look at such a, a substantial yet in the weeds bill. Um, the farm bill is, um, is something that Congress passes every five years. It's actually been around in, in sort of its current form since about the mid-1930s. And what it does is it sets out um, the, the policies and programs and the funding for a majority of, uh, of the USDA's Department of Agriculture um, of, of, their, of their program areas. And so the bill itself has 12 different titles. I won't name all of them, but it goes through different components of it, looking at commodities and agriculture. Conservation is a very large part of it. The nutrition title is probably the largest title of it, which has about 70, I think uh, about 70% of the funding, about 74% of the funding in the most current version of the farm bill. 
but it does also work in helping support build um, infrastructure in, in rural areas. There's a large forestry component of it as well, too. Um, so it touches so many different areas and programmatic components. And I should also say it provides funding for, for research and, and agriculture, funding for land-grant institutions and other educational opportunities as well, too. So this bill looks um, um, basically... It's done every five years, and there's a little bit of a trigger switch in there that forces Congress to actually act about every five years. This was one of the very first farm bills they've done on time. Um, they haven't done one on time, uh, I think, in about the last previous six. They usually just extend the law out and then continue negotiations of it. Um, but um, why it's important for Congress to take a look about every five years is that this, um, the realities within food and agriculture change um, pretty often. That can be based on different impacts to climate, different impacts to market forces, different impacts to, to other components, to trade. And so it's important to have a continually updated set of, 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 of laws and programs that really help respond to the realities of farmers and food producers on the ground so that um, they're not getting too far ahead and, or, and that they have the sort of the support and the programs match what they need to be able to um, help them uh, sustain and thrive there their production and businesses. Clearly, this is a very complex piece of legislation, and we really appreciate your breaking it down. Which provisions can we point out as particularly significant for tribes? There are certainly some ones that have a, um, a fairly substantial impact. Uh, I think the first one to mention would be the nutrition title. As I said earlier, the nutrition title has a majority of the funding. It's actually about 76% of the funding of the whole bill. And just to give a, a scope and size of that, the, the five-year spending of this currently passed farm bill is $428 billion. It's one of the largest non-defense spending bills that Congress passes. So you're looking at over three quarters of that is fully focused on nutrition, which is the supplemental uh, nutrition assistance program or SNAP or the renamed food stamps program. It also includes the food distribution program on Indian reservations or FDIPR or the commodities program, um, which represents a very small sliver of that 76% uh, of spending. Um, what we do know from some of the statistics is about 24% of American Indian and Alaska Native households receive SNAP. And about 25% of Native Americans overall receive some type of federal food assistance. So we know that the nutrition programs um, have a substantial and important impact throughout the entirety of Indian country. Tribes also run and manage um, the FDIPA program as well. So that's an important component of, of tribal self-governance and providing programs and services directly to tribal citizens that can be responsive to their, um, their specific um, 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 realities on the ground as well. Um, so the nutrition title is a very important component. I would also say the conservation title is 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 one that has a great amount of interest too as well. I think just with um, a lot of times getting into other USDA programs, conservation is usually the key to try to get into that. You know, particularly sometimes you have to be in in some type of conservation program or plan to get into crop insurance or some other commodity programs. So having uh, conservation focus is important. There are a lot of uh, tribes and tribal producers that use the conservation programs like um, CSP and EQIP. So those are so that title is very important as well. Uh, forestry garnered a lot of interest as well, as well too. There's um, over 300 tribes that have um, different forestry lands or um, or woodlands as well. So there's a lot of interest in looking at trying to be able to have support to help provide healthy forest management practices throughout the bill. Um, I would also say, in addition to that, credit is something that garnered a, a good amount of interest as well, too, in trying to be able to help support credit access to 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 um, to, to native to native producers. Um, rural development title also is important. Um, one of the things in the rural development title that really sticks out is that you can build so much just baseline basic um, infrastructure all the way from roads to the, the wires that go down to connect the electricity to broadband, the water, housing, the community centers, buildings, schools, using all of rural development's authorities. And that authority is really focused on rural areas where you have a lot of tribal governments located. So being able to help improve access to some of those programs can really help build 
strong tribal communities and strong rural communities as well, too. Um, and there's a lot of interest also in the horticulture title, too, with the um, with the changes to legalize the production of industrial hemp. And there's a provision there that allows for the um, for tribal plans for that as well. So uh, I say those are probably some of the larger ones um, throughout. But there are a lot of interest in Garner throughout the entirety of the bill. And I think that's just sort of a reality of how USDA works, where there are these kind of set buckets, but they all sort of are, are interwoven together and can work together. Clearly, the Farm Bill has significant impact for quality of life and food security in Indian country in general, with provisions that are particularly relevant to any tribe or tribal citizen involved in food production. Now, you work closely with the Native Farm Bill Coalition, which was founded in October 2017 on the current iteration of the Farm Bill. For our listeners, the ball on this effort started rolling in early 2017 with the Shakopee Metabacontan Sioux community in Minnesota, which was looking at potential changes in federal law that could help support tribal self-governance, food sovereignty, and healthy and traditional foods. The Indigenous Food and Agriculture Initiative developed a report that walked through the earlier version of the Farm Bill looking at opportunities for tribes in the 2018 version. Over 170 tribes were involved with or represented the effort, along with several intertribal organizations, including the Intertribal Agriculture Council, the National Congress of American Indians, and the Intertribal Timber Council, and a number of allied organizations. That effort and that founding, I think, really put together a large a large group, and it was one of the largest, it was the largest um, group of tribal governments, tribal leaders, and tribal organizations coming together really to speak with one voice and talk about what are some of the changes in the farm bill that can really help build infrastructure, build economic development, and at the end of the day, ultimately feed people and provide jobs and opportunities throughout Indian country. And um, what that ended up doing was culminating when the final bill was uh, signed into law was uh, including 63 uh, tribal-specific provisions throughout 11 of the 12 titles of the Farm Bill. Where did you and the coalition put a lot of focus? A lot of the, a lot of the, um, the requests that were put forward by um, the tribes and tribal organizations from the Native Farm Bill Coalition really focused on supporting tribal government sovereignty and also tribal government parity and also parity for tribal producers and programs. And so some of that was... Um, when you're looking at the scope of food and agriculture law, while there is the large federal farm bill, a good amount of, of, of that and a good amount of food and agriculture gets regulated on the local level. So there are a lot of deferences to state law, local law, other authorities within the bill. So trying to ensure that when, the, when there were those types of deferences, that, that tribal governments and tribal laws were included in that. And also where there are places where states were running programs that tribal governments would have the ability to be able to run those programs for their citizens as well. Um, some of that was, was uh, looked at to do that, as, you, as you'd mentioned, looking at um, what's uh, a, a tribal self-governance or 638 contracting, um, which comes out of the Indian Self-Determination and Education Assistance Act of 1975. And it's a recognition of tribal governments stepping into the role of, a fed, of the federal government to run and manage programs that impact um, their citizens and impact um, folks throughout Indian country. And so that's been um, just limited to um, uh, Indian Health Service, providing health care services, um, Department of Interior programs and Bureau of Indian Affairs programs as well um, for about almost uh, 47 years uh, now. And they've been an incredibly successful component of it. So when we're looking at trying to be able to help improve and expand tribal self-governance um, and trying to have that recognized authority at USDA, that was some of the larger the larger asks and trying to say and take a look at what different programs should USDA now have that delegated authority to enter into these type of tribal self-governance contracts and compacts. One thing that was important throughout here was looking at ways to be able to help support Native producers in traditional foods. Um, so part of that is trying to improve access to credit and making changes into the credit system that can help further support tribal producers to have entry into that as well. And, of course, looking at other ways to have inclusions of traditional foods and programs, particularly in the, in the nutrition programs um, that 
that that that serve tribal citizens and so trying to have those type of foods have uh um to be able to be included in those programs to be able to help try to improve the ability for native producers to go through the procurement process that's often required for federal programs as well colby what are you most excited about in the current iteration of the farm bill that's a great question i i I think some of the more exciting components of it are, are the ones that focus on uh, self-governance and inclusion of traditional foods. For the first time, this farm bill allows, there's two provisions um, that provide that 638 Tribal Self-Governance Authority to USDA. The first one's in the nutrition title and is in the FDIPA program. And I should go back and say one of the largest asks, I think as you alluded to before, was to have tribal governments have the authority to run as many federal food assistance programs as possible. There was a larger request to, to, to have tribes be, have the authority to run and manage the SNAP program, which uh, there, was a, there was a bill introduced on the Senate side at one point that ultimately didn't get in. But one of the pieces that got in regarding 638 was for the FDIPA program that, would, that um, will allow for, uh, as a demonstration project, FDIPA sites and, or, and, and multiple sites to enter into 638 uh, federal government food procurement contracts where they'll be able to go out and source food for their specific programs. And I think what that will do is not one additional self-governance component in USDA for the first time, but it also really allows those sites to be able to say, these are the type of foods that we want to source for our citizens in the program. These are the traditional foods. These are the culturally appropriate foods that our folks want to have and be able to go out to purchase those from native producers to hopefully allow them to have a, a, a federal program to sell into without having to sell into the entirety of the FDIPA program, which you would have to now sell into if you wanted to be a producer. So it allows for um, more focused regionally and culturally appropriate traditional foods in the program, and then also allows a pathway for native producers to be able to sell into, um, into that program and to help build their capacity to grow and expand production and, and to help um, uh, improve, um, improve food access. There's a 638 self-governance contracting provision that allows for tribal governments to contract with Forest Service and also the Bureau of Land Management at the Department of Interior to uh, manage adjacent federal forest lands that are adjacent to um, their, uh, their, their, their tribal forest lands as well. And so this is a strong recognition of, of the ability of, of, of not only trying to help improve forest management and contracts, but doing so under the self-governance model. Forest Service does um, already do cooperative management agreements. So this is really that next step in being able to do so under a true self-governance model. And, and, and this can do something to, to, to really truly help improve the health of, of, of the whole forest systems as well that allows tribes to help manage federal forests where the federal government may not have the ability or capacity to do so or the full resources to do so. So now you're able to have healthier, healthier forest systems that are managed under a consistent management practice, which has been shown to, to, to do a lot of things, including uh, uh, lower some of the damages and impacts of, 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 of fire and to help mitigate that risk, but also be able to help manage the risk of infestation and some other issues that, um, that happens, which is incredibly important now as we're seeing every year is now the worst year for, 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 for forestry fires. One of the, we call, I think I like to call it like the largest, smallest change in the, in the whole bill, in the conservation title, USDA has always had the authority to enter into what are called alternative funding arrangements with tribal governments to fund conservation practices like CSP and EQIP. Um, that was always done under um, a May authority. So the secretary had that authority. And this change in this bill actually changes that, that May to a shall. So what this is is an important recognition of when tribal governments are um, looking to do conservation practices or they're organized in, in ways that they've been um, 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 engaged in for, for thousands of years or entering into conservation or using conservation practices that are traditional or they're coming to USDA and then they might not look like other producers or other entities that USDA sees that that itself is not a barrier for tribes to access conservation programs and funding. 
And so under these alternative funding arrangements, now tribal governments will be able to take over um, and set and work with the federal government on what the management practices are, implement those, be able to manage the money, the reporting, and all the other components of it as well, too, and to basically step into that role, which I think will be able to really help almost extend some of the capacity components of, of NRCS to, to, to build that out. So I think those are probably some of the three very exciting uh, changes that, that we're seeing that will do a lot to really help support tribal government parity, tribal producer parity, and access to traditional foods. And also support, um, um, I think, I think uh, um, support conservation practices and support healthy lands, healthy forests, healthy water, and healthy foods. And before we go, Colby, what are some recent accomplishments and projects underway the initiative that tribes already involved in or prospectively interested in food production can take advantage of? Um, we developed um, a model tribal food and agriculture code, which is 19 titles long. It's a free resource for tribal governments and um, to, to have access to, but it start, basically starts from anywhere from the creation of a Department of Agriculture to kind of be the, the regulatory entity or body, and then walks through um, water, conservation, agriculture, business practices, um, trade, um, economic development, um, and, and takes a strong look at basically almost if you're looking at beginning food and agriculture at any different part or looking to be able to expand in some ways, what are maybe some steps as a particular government that you, you would like to be able to take um, in that? One, it's an important expression of, of, of tribal sovereignty, but it's also a way to be able to help set the parameters to help protect tribal producers in that process, to be able to say, these are the different components that are important to us that we want to have set in our laws. Um, and so we, we, we've been, um, we're very excited about that project. We released the code in December 2018. Um, that's something that's available online for tribal producers and um, tribal producers and tribal governments to, to, to have them and to hopefully be a starting point for this. And we're offering technical assistance on that as well. I'm probably not the, you can tell me, am I the first person? I'm probably not to call it a Department of Agriculture in a box. You are the first person, and it'd be great if you could have your permission to, to use something like that. that. That's a great way to describe it. Um, it really is kind of meant to be that. It's supposed to be, you know, really that baseline level, you know, um, works that a, a tribal in-house counsel or their attorneys can take a look at it. You know, there can be an analysis done on, okay, these are the different components that are important to what we're looking to do. These are the ways that we would tweak um, what the model law would look like. Um, and then be able to pass it in a manner that um, that, that incorporates um, what are some of the what are some of the biggest components and protections that 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 tribe would want to be able to, to to have in place. I would also very highly recommend a lot of um, particularly uh, producers and tribal governments if they're looking to um, looking for some very specific on the ground technical assistance to reach out to the folks at Inter uh, Tribal Agriculture Council. They have their um, technical assistance network in all um, throughout the entirety of the country. And there's a representative in each one of the um, Bureau of Indian Affairs regions as well, too. And they can really help some of that, uh, provide some of that on the ground technical assistance components as well. So I think that there's a, there's a lot of uh, resources just kind of within a lot of the different groups and entities that, um, that we can provide and that we also work with as well, too. Um, there's also a lot of outreach at USDA. You know, if you're looking at some of their support, there are some um, different changes to beginning newer and socially disadvantaged um, farmer uh, programs. USDA um, is looking to implement those. We, as we know, uh, the beginning farmer and rancher programs and um, socially disadvantaged farmer and rancher programs, which have existed for a little while, were actually combined and provided baseline funding for the very first time. So those programs have, uh, I think it's $30 million um, between all of them. And so those are ways for beginning farmers and ranchers in Indian country to be able to take a look at what are some of the opportunities to help get support to have access for both um, you know, being able to develop their production to getting into markets and looking at some of those other components. Thank you, Colby. To learn more about the initiative, visit www.indigenousfoodandag.com. Com. We hope to continue chatting with tribes and legal experts on energy development, 
about issues spanning climate change, water quality, and more. Until next time, this is Cynthia Harris with the Environmental Law Institute. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you, so please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.